I like your uh, Ignite Lion Chaser behind you. That's very cool. So if somebody gave that to me, it's actually metal. Oh, I thought it was like painted on your wall. Yeah, it's, it's metal. So this is my, my new place, and so my office isn't quite set up yet, but so I have to do something. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, now I need the fancy background. I like you guys' background. I know. This computer I'm on doesn't support backgrounds. Figure that out. So out of all the computers to bring, this is the one I wound up with. Hey, Al, did you see that statement I sent you? That email? You were talking, Al. We can't hear you. Nope. There. I, I just re, I just reset it. You have a positive. Of course I do. <laughs> I find it funny because we're so close to the tip of the spear. Like on a Monday, I might talk to eight people across the nation in every major market, right? So I can get, I really get a quick sense of things that are, you know, like the buried, those folks are a couple weeks behind. So they're saying one thing. I'm like, wait a minute, I just saw this this morning. So it's interesting. So I have a little different perspective on the same stuff because we're seeing it quicker. Right. Yeah. 132 registrants. Hope we have a guest speaker. <laughs> I just I just pinged him. Well, we got 45 yeah. on the call right now, so give us just a second. Thanks, Judy. Are you seeing anything in arms right now, guys? Paula, are you seeing anything in arms? Investor-wise? You know, it, it's, well, it's difficult um, for anyone other than a bank or credit union to compete in the arm market right now. I think we'll see that change in the next week, two couple weeks. I mean, right now they're starting to, we had like no interest, zero appetite two weeks ago. And then a little bit of appetite. I think they're going to, I think we're going to see some appetite there from our investors in the next upcoming time. Well, we, that would be wonderful. I think it's an interesting time too. you figure, uh, you know, like a seven one or something like that. We know for a fact, we're going to have relief way before that, but for seven years. So, you know, it's not really that scary. I love this home genius that Radiant put out too. Well, one of our wonderful account executives, Karen Crumpton, brought brought Steve to us. Um, so excited to have him making sure he is what he needs. Hold on one second. I'm still in this.
Hello, Steve. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Wonderful. Thank you very much. Um, just wanted to take a moment and uh, welcome everyone to our call. We've got a good many that are already on. We have several that are continuing to dial in, so the number's growing. Um, wanted to briefly introduce Steve Walker, who is part of our Ignite Coaching Executive Leadership Team. Um, thank you, Steve, for being with us. Al Heklinski, I'm about to turn it over to you, Al, is the SVP of the Fairway Wholesale Lending Channel, and we are very, very excited to have Steve Gainsler with us. Steve has spent 25 years at the intersection of technology and the housing industry, which is where we find ourselves today. Um, he's the head of Home Genius, SAS product organization, and he leads and facilitates the roadmap and creation of all Home Genius SAS products as well as the customer success teams. Um, he has spent a lot of time in data analytics, um, and we're looking forward to him talking to us with his background and expertise on the current housing environment. Um, so with that, I will turn it over to Al Heklinski. Thanks, Holly. Welcome, Steve, both uh, Steve Gainsler as well as Steve Walker. Excited to have you both of you on the call today. Um, you know, Steve Gainsler, you must be a popular man. Our, our numbers are increasing as, uh, as I'm watching here, as I'm talking. Um, everybody wants to know what the crystal ball says. Um, you know, what, is, what does it look like tomorrow, uh, much less month, next month, three months from now? Um, interesting times in the marketplace, so looking forward to get some perspective on that. But you know, we always want to take a minute at the beginning of these podcasts and welcome our customers. Um, remind you that these podcasts are really all about trying to provide value to you. Uh, to help you go out and you know conduct business, attract business, drive more business. Uh, it's been an interesting run since we've started these podcasts, going back about 18 months now. Interesting, interesting marketplace uh, that has given um, plentiful uh, over that time frame. Now it shifts on us, uh, and you know this is the time where uh, relationships matter the most. You know where I like to use the two words knowledge and uh, experience. And so, you know, knowledge and experience in this market means a lot about shifting and, and focusing on what pockets of business are out there right now. You know, and, and we had the, the luxury of sitting here for the last 18, 24 months, seeing a lot of conventional high credit score cookie cutter deals come through the doors. And that was great. Um, as we change, as we get into this cycle, um, those aren't as plentiful. And what is out there is the government deals, the hairy deals, the deals that need a little work, need a little effort, need a little collaboration with your underwriter, you know, trying to find a way to make deals happen. And, and therein lies, you know, the, the relationship you've created with Fairway. Uh, this is where Fairway excels. This is a marketplace where your partnership with Fairway means something. It means you'll be able to close loans that others won't. Uh, it means that we'll be able to take tough deals and get them to the table faster than your competition. So excited to have you for a couple minutes this afternoon. Um, thank you for what you mean to to you know Fairway Wholesale Lending. Uh, it's all about relationships, family, teammates, uh, and you are at the top of that list for us. So, with that being said, before we turn it over to Steve Gainsler, Steve Walker, and we've we've been working on these podcasts. You've been guest host. You've helped facilitate some of these. Uh, any words? You know, as far as just reminder, what Steve Walker is, is a coach in our Fairway Ignite platform, works with a lot of loan officers on a daily basis. Anything as we dive into this and turn it over to Steve Gainsler to get more perspective on the marketplace, anything you'd like to share with this group? You know, I'm really excited to be here too, Al. Um, and I'm excited to hear what Steve has. I, I got the, the slide deck in advance and I was scanning through it. So I think it's going to be phenomenal to hear that frontline perspective. Um, we do have a really interesting uh, advantage, Al, with what we do. On a Monday, I might talk to you know 10, 12 people across the nation in every major market and really uh, you know get an idea of what's happening. So, for me personally, I, it'll be interesting to hear Steve because I may have a different outlook that may be a little bit closer to the tip of the spear. Uh, the last three Mondays in a row, we've seen price reductions. We've seen some more open houses. Uh, you know, so we're seeing a little bit of a, a, a light at the end of the tunnel, and I'm pretty excited about that. So I'll sit tight and watch what, and listen listen intently to what Steve has. But I think that uh, I think we have some good stuff in store. I don't think that it's going to be nearly as uh, as bad as what you know what we might feel today. I think that um, 
that, that, that uh, the lights at the end of the tunnel, we can, we're starting to get a glimpse. Thanks, Steve. All right, Steve Gainsler, the table is yours. Um, enlighten us, please. <laughs> well, you, you've set the bar pretty high for me. I hope that I can uh, achieve uh, some clearance over that bar and uh, and bring some uh, levity and some, uh, yeah, it's been a, a, a challenging rate market for the last uh, you know number of months now. And today, now with the announcement from the Federal Reserve, uh, not more than uh, an hour and 10 minutes ago, that we have a 75 basis point increase in the federal funds rate, right? These are these are major, major. These are uh, you know, significant shifts in the landscape uh, that we've seen and we've been accustomed to for the last number of years. So, um, I have uh, I have some slides I'm going to go through um, again by quick introduction. My name is Steve Gensler. Um, I am the head of uh, products, SaaS products, and our data science organization. Those two organizations uh, at a company called Home Genius, which is a subsidiary of Radian. Um, one of the largest mortgage insurance companies uh, in the United States. So excited to be here and really happy for the opportunity to talk to everybody. Uh, hopefully we'll get some questions on the backside. I know Steve's probably got some already in his back pocket waiting to go. And, uh, and so I'm excited to a nice open dialogue. Um, I will say this just from a kind of legal perspective, right? The comments that I make today are mine and mine only. They're not representative of that of Home Genius or Radian. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I'm lucky I have opinions, but I have to make sure that you understand they are mine. Uh, and so I'll go from there. So I'm going to share my screen. Hopefully you all can see that. I'm sure one of you will tell me if you can't. Um, let me share this. There we go. Okay. Hopefully you can see my screen. I'm going to move this around so it's out yep. of the way. Okay. So look, I thought uh, what would be helpful is, you know, we do a lot of work in uh, within Home Genius. Um, and I'm gonna leave it in this kind of, uh, instead of full screen presentation, because I actually like to uh, to annotate and sometimes uh, I use my Zoom annotation tools uh, and uh, it's better than me just using my hands like I normally point at things. Uh, so I can do that as well. So just bear with me on that one. So um, we do a lot of work in the real estate um, housing space um, obviously, Radian is part of the lending space. And so the combination of the things we do in Homogeneous and things we do in at Radian really do give us, I think, a really unique perspective of kind of the intersection between the lender, right, the, the real estate community, the consumer themselves, even investors, frankly, right, corporate investors and commercial investors. And so what I like to do is share some of the trends that we're seeing in, in America from a housing perspective and um, some perspectives that we have from some unique data that we that we are able to leverage in, in doing so. And then I thought I spent a few minutes and just talking about you know technology and some of the impact it's having on, on valuations and kind of looking forward to um, what might be coming next in uh, in valuations. So let me go, oh, I gotta go back to my mouse here, don't I? Yeah, clear that. It's the downside of this mouse. Okay. So uh, this chart is already outdated, even though I made it in the last few days, right? Uh, but here's what's happened. We have seen, and, and you all know this, right? So this is now one of those slides where I'm kind of informing you of something that you don't know, other than maybe some of the statistics to back up the, the how dramatic a shift we have seen in interest rates. Interest rates are, right, they are the strongest indicator of future mortgage or real estate activity uh, that we have. Um, they are an economic factor. They embed in them lots of other economic factors like unemployment or um, mobility or affordability. All those things are kind of built into future risk, right? Lending institutions like your all's um, build those into mortgage rates. Uh, the secondary market, right, drives that from uh, where ultimate capital is to invest in those loans or loans as securities, one of the two. So it's been over 4,800 days since the last time we were above 5.2% in mortgage rates, right? After today's announcement by the Fed, right? We're now up at, you know, five and five eighths, and we're seeing numbers up even towards 6% now. Um, we've increased over 200 basis points just this year alone. Now it's, again, this is at the last week, we're higher than that. Two significant changes, right? The, the magnitude of the change and the rapidness of the change, the, 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 the quickness of the change. So the change we had, uh, the 242 basis points we've had, um, uh, since last summer, so less than a year, has been the was the largest absolute change in in thirty year mortgage rates since 1980. 
right? So we're talking about a period of time when we're going from 16% to 18% mortgage rates, not, you know, two and change or three and change, right? Up to five and change. And so largest increase, it's also the largest uh, move in rate ever, right? Ever. Think about that. And now with the change in the last you know, few days, we're probably, I haven't done the remath, it's, we're probably a hundred percent increase in 30-year mortgage rates now in less than a year. Um, because we're going from that, we're going from that lower number. It's not 16 to 18, it's you know, it, it's three to six. And so when we look at what happened in 1994, right? And so that was the last time we had such a significant uh, rate increase from the Fed. Um, I lived through that environment as well. Uh, 1980. 81, I just mentioned. So we've had really significant increases in a very, very short period of time. Now, if I take that and I couple that with, you know, looking at the very long term, right? It's not always bad. I mean, if you look at historically where we are right now, you'll notice a few things. One is we don't have a gray line, which associates with recessions. So we don't have that. And I'll put in the air quotes yet, right? It's not a prediction, it's just a comment. Um, but we also have seen many times when rates have gone up, again, not this dramatically, but then have gone back the other direction. And so it's not always a bad or negative scenario when uh, rates go up. The challenge we have right now is its impact on affordability. And, uh, and so we have really the, the confluence of two really significant changes. One is home prices rising, again, at meteoric or historic rates over the past few years combined now with right, meteoric and historic increases in mortgage rates. And you can see this really interesting chart uh, that I borrowed from, from a combination of Moody's and Black Knight and Freddie Mac. Uh, this blue line on here represents essentially the payment to income ratio, right? So it's how much, how much money uh, it takes for the median household, how much of that income you need to make that average P&I payment, okay? 16 months ago, as you can see where the blue line was, it was 19%, right? We're now over 35%. So 35% takes 35% of median household income just to make the average payment. Significant change. I saw another chart recently that was actually looking at the actual payment itself. Again, these are the impacts of, we had it, we had such a low rate environment that even P&I payments, right? On larger homes were still lower than they were in, right? Earlier years, so the monthly PNI payment on the average priced home in the U.S. is now nearly two thousand, not at two thousand dollars yet, but nearly two thousand dollars. And that's assuming twenty percent down, right? Common mortgage. That prior peak was in two thousand and four, at uh, almost fourteen hundred dollars. So, and in the last eighteen months, again, because rates were going down, that monthly PNI payment is, is up by a hundred percent. We've doubled that what that payment would need to be for the average priced home. In the United States again because the average price home has gone up so so significantly. So if I switch, let me switch for a second to um, supply and demand, right? So you know I give you the rates, I give you the affordability kind of construct. Let's layer in supply and demand. What's happening in supply and demand? Like why are we seeing what we're seeing uh, in the face of this dramatic shift in affordability? This is a, just kind of like a heat chart that I put together, looking at the top ten and bottom ten. Uh, states for sales and listings in the most recent five months. So the five months of this year, as compared to the average of the first five months of all the last five years. So from 2017, 2016 to 2021, each of the January through May's, right? How much volume do we normally have in sales and listings versus this year's sales and listings, right? And so even though we've seen this dramatic increase in rates, we see here, on average, the national average, listings are down 35%. In some areas, they're down 75 to 80% from you know, the last five-year average, right? Whereas sales are actually higher in most places, right? On average, they're higher. Now, there are states where they're, they're lower as well relative to the last five years, right? The, the boom has changed a little bit in some of these other areas. Some of it's just supply and demand, right? If I don't have as much su su supply, I can't sell as many. So this these sales numbers being down a lot are not necessarily a function of a, of a worse economy. Clearly, the economy is better everywhere than it was five years ago. It's a function of the fact there's just no supply. So I can't have sales. But still, in general, even with sales nationally lower, I'm sorry, listings lower by 
sales are still up by 3%. So an interesting kind of trend that we're starting to see in a snapshot. Um, a couple, these are a couple of things I, I, I publish a, um, a report each month on our on the rating home price index. And some of you will see some of these charts sometimes in my press releases. So I think these are really some of these interesting ones. So this is just sales uh, counts, which is the, and you can see the seasonal impact. It's the, the orange line or the red line uh, on, the, on the chart uh, versus the average sales price, right? So this is the average sales price. It's not necessarily the average value of the housing stock. It's just those houses that are selling and what's the average price. So you can see that since the start of the pandemic, the average sales price of homes is up 49%, right? So if I, if I look at it, I say, uh, you know, 49%. So I'm looking at, um, you know, from March of 2021, sorry, March of 2020, I wish it was 2021, March 2020 till now, right? Up 49% on average sales price. And what's happening though, and this kind of behind the scenes is, if you look at the sales by price point, and we typically break up into five different price points, when you look at by price points, what we're seeing is that it's actually, there are just more homes selling at higher price points, all else being equal, than at lower price points. Um, and, and so that has an impact on this kind of average sales price. If I just sell more higher priced homes, not, not necessarily because they've gone up by more, but just their higher, the higher category of, of properties, the larger homes, more affluent homes. And so we're seeing that this impact of affordability has actually been an impact that's been going on for quite some time, right? That, that even the economic benefit we've seen in the last you know, five or six years, um, we can clearly see it during the pandemic, some by choice, right? People didn't wanna move. And so it might've affected first-time homeowners or renters and happy they didn't wanna get into a house. We are seeing that there is this first time in first family homes. So first time being usually um, single or uh, you know uh, two family, no kids, and then first family. It's, a, it's my first family home. So not my second trade up home or retirement home or other types of homes like that. The other thing that changes price points in this is um, things like new construction, right? So I use Idaho. I use Boise, Idaho as an example of this, uh, where the 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 mix of price points. The mix of homes is changing because you had a smaller market that is building a lot of homes. And so you're building newer and newer homes. And frankly, you're building larger homes. I'm sure many people on this phone call know people that have moved from, let's say, California to Boise, Idaho, or a similar experience where you've gone from very mature markets with large supplies and very high prices to markets that were uh, not that, right? Sleepier towns in the past. And so when you think about somebody moving from San Diego and selling a house for, you know, selling a, a two bedroom, two bath condo for, you know, $2 million, moving to Boise and buying a, you know, 6,000 6, square foot house with five bedrooms and four bathrooms to them, right? They're, they're, they're still gaining wealth in making that trade, but they've just changed the housing stock dramatically in an area like Boise. And so it's not always just that home prices themselves are going up. It's the fact that the mix of housing is also uh, changing as well. Hey, Steve, can I jump in? We've got a question in the chat just now. Is there a way to separate out single family homes being purchased by families versus business entities, hedge fund entities? Yeah, that's it's a great, the cor corporate investors, we call them, right? Um, yeah. And so uh, we do track, we do look at data between the, the we'll call the single family rental and the iBuyers, right? So by, by purpose of buying corporate ownership versus others, um, typically what's happened, I don't have that chart in here. I actually have a chart I use other times that actually um, uh, isolates the markets that are most predominantly um, corporate investor markets, right? So the corporate investors have, have historically moved within a, a small realm of, of, or pockets of cities. So the, the earlys were down south. It was the Atlantas, right? It moved into Indianapolis, it moved to the Raleigh Durham's and the Charlottes. Right. There was the Phoenix component for a while. And so there were just there were a handful. It wasn't a nationwide phenomenon. And so it's actually somewhat easy to track uh, where they are. Now we're seeing that you know, corporate owners are branching off even further, right? Supply demand. And also they've also now to some extent priced themselves out of certain markets. And so um, we don't have that here, but we do look at those numbers. And clearly, what we see is those areas that have um, 
uh, what we'll call buy boxes that are corporate investor uh, targeted have seen higher appreciation rates um, than other areas. But it's not always the case. I'll give an example. Uh, Texas is a great example of an area of the country that during the prior to the recession, during the recession, and even the few years post-recession was relatively flat from a home price appreciation standpoint, right? Probably learned the lessons from the, from the 80s. And, uh, and so we didn't see a significant downturn in, in you know, the Dallas and the Austin and you know, um, Houston and San Antonio and the bigger metro markets um, before, during, or after the recession. And, but we've now seen in the last three or four years, and everyone, everyone knows it, it's you know, migration out of certain areas into other areas. And that's not necessarily driven by corporate ownership, right? That's just migra migratory changes into uh, pricing structures. Those markets we watch as well because they've gone from laggards to leaders in many instances. Um, you'll see in a couple of slides, um, Atlanta has been one of the strongest markets in the United States over the last five years, largely driven by you know, corporate investors coming in and, and, uh, and, and making cash purchases and, and pushing up those segments. Uh, but again, what's really important when you look at this uh, from a business perspective um, is looking at what segments they play in. Like their buy box is really important because they don't, they don't purchase um, all across the spectrum of housing styles and types and price points, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, coming out of the Great Recession, uh, the buy box was fixed rubbers, right? They tried to do, uh, you know, paint and carpet, we used to call it, right? Coat of paint, put some new carpet down, resell the home. Um, and so a lot of those were foreclosed homes, right? Sucking up that excess inventory. That's changed as well. And so now you have all kinds of, so that's expanded into single family rental and into corporate uh, iBuyers that have moved into different segments. They're not just the fix and flippers anymore, right? They're actually folks who are now corporate buyers and looking bigger stuff. So we do, it is impacting on those markets um, disproportionately than other markets, uh, but it's not always the reason that those markets go up. Um, true migration is also having a, a pretty significant impact. And just a, a follow-up that I'm not sure this is this is really a question that you can answer, but in your opinion, do you foresee the government legislation stepping in to limit corporate investors from buying up the single-family market? Yeah, it's interesting. So Canada has actually put in place um, laws in the last uh, couple of years that actually prevent investment by, uh, by U.S. investors. So um, as a matter of fact, during COVID, if you owned a house in Canada, you couldn't go to it. Uh, and so you either went there and you stayed there for the entire time of COVID or you couldn't get to it. Um, I grew up in Western New York, right, along, the, along Lake Ontario. So we have lots of friends that have placed in Canada. Um, and so there are other countries who have tried to prevent this kind of investor community pushing. Now, they didn't do it with the corporate investors. They did it through right, mom and pa investors that were just pushing into these marketplaces. Um, you know, I think that the corporate investor um, is, is largely driven by the capital market. Right, like everything else, and so ultimately, at the end of the day, um, the when when the capital markets deem that there is either too much risk because home prices are going to slow, or they're not going to rise at the same uh, pace, or funding costs, right? Because now we're having Fed funds push up, um, come to the point where there's this disequilibrium. Um, that in, that investment theory will start to, like all investment theories do, um, start to soften. My opinion again. Right. I've seen this many times. I, I spent 20 years in the U.S. capital markets, um, and so I've seen the impact of you know that end investor um, and how they fund some of these investment strategies. Um, once that capital becomes uh, is is less available or more costly, it will kind of naturally mitigate uh, some of that activity. I, I don't see the federal government uh, coming in and trying to limit. Um, investors in uh, in single-family homes um, in any way, shape, or form. I think you know corporate investing would be very difficult. Again, my opinion, very difficult for, for the government, um, especially on a national basis, because most real estate laws are established at the state level, and it's typically been a state issue. Um, for the national government to come, the federal government to come in and impose something on a corporate entity that they wouldn't impose for the same exact activity on individuals. Right, corporate activity is still two, three percent. Now, maybe large percentages of, say, the Raleigh market, but you know, upwards of fifty percent of the Raleigh market is, from time to time, you know, these corporate investors. Um, but it still represents a small percentage of the overall transactions and all the ownership of homes and rental homes in the United States. 
right? and still a very small percentage. So I don't, you know, my opinion would be that, that I, I wouldn't expect the federal government to have the legs to be able to do that. So then I have this um, other slide, uh, which looks at absorption and supply. So we looked at kind of the demand side for a second, right? And so look at the absorption. So this, this orange line is, is a different. So the blue line is now um, um, actual listing volume. And so you can see that listing volume is just, right, since 2019, and even before 2019, was still coming down. But now we're at a spot where it's come down significantly. And if you take the juxtapose that and say, well, what percentage of the market is being absorbed? Right? How quickly are we going through this declining number of listings? Um, you can see that five years ago, um, sales represented, uh, as I'm measuring it here, 20% of the prior month's listing inventory. Right? So there's different, different ways we can define absorption. I'm just defining here as an easy way of saying, how many homes were sold in February that were, that were listed in, in January? Right? Total count, total count. Now we're at 35%. And you can just see again how rapidly that line has gone up. And again, so these are the issues that we're facing. Again, we have very limited supply in many, many markets. Uh, and so uh, that demand is just being uh, elsewhere, elsewhere driven by the lack of supply. And the kind of known, um, it's been so well publicized that you, know, you, can't, uh, you can't find homes, that people are just jumping on them as quickly as they can and then bidding them up, right? Um, it's also... We used to track, um, you know, list price or list price to sales price, or vice versa, sales price to list price, just to see, you know, when we still do, um, how much above a certain uh, list price uh, a home is actually selling for, right? Because you're seeing, you know, everyone hears about these bidding wars, um, you feel it, right? Um, the rating HPI, um, not a plug, but I think it's it's valuable because it really is probably the most dynamic um, tracking tool of of home prices uh, exists in the world, right? Um, this model is, built, is released every single month. It's the only monthly released um, HPI that actually does what we call micro-market analysis, where we can actually combine geography all the way down to the zip code level with some sort of attribute like bedrooms or square footage, like size of home. And so we can actually track home prices, uh, and we do this on a monthly basis, uh, track home prices at all these different combinations, over a million combinations of different geographies and property attributes. And you can see, right, what's happened since 2012, just in the HPI, the HPI, the top panel here is the HPI index. So this is just kind of the actual overall level of price on a relative basis since 2005. The bottom panel is the home price appreciation rate. So this is the annualized rate of year over year appreciation. So that would be, right, June of 2021 to June of 2022, what's the rate of measure, okay? and so. We just talked about rates being up significantly, affordability changes, and those affordability changes um, happened a long time ago, right? Um, but yet this month, right? Uh, so it's June 15th, uh, our June 2022 stats, which are literally fresh off the, pre fresh off the press, um, which represent activity through the end of May. So this is 15 days old activity, that the May activity was another all-time record for home price appreciation rate, and home price index levels. So measured on a year over year basis. Um, so again, May to May, 16.3%, uh, which is again, in our index and other indices will have different kind of baseline measures. Our index, it's the highest reading we've ever had. And if I take just the May to June, just the one month chain from May to June, right? Which really means April, May, because it's the end of May. Um, and, I, and I annualize that number, 18%, again, an all-time record for home price appreciation for an annualized home price appreciation rate and a monthly appreciation rate. So we're still seeing at a national level, uh, we haven't seen that crack. You, you'll notice at the, at, the, at the very top, you know, right end of this home price appreciation chart, uh, you do see that there is some, uh, you know, movement here. Can I get my annotator here? Oops. You can see here that there's a little bit of you know, starting to kind of move off and plateau in that direction. And so we're starting to see some of that uh, in what we're, that we're noticing in the numbers themselves. Um, uh, but we do see that there has been still very strong uh, home price appreciation to date. 
So now if I go backwards, go from the wrong way. If I go and I look at that a little more um, specific, I can look at regions. Right? So here's the various regions of the country as we measure them. We have six different regions along with the, na the, na the nation itself. Um, so on a month over month basis, okay, if I take that again, that, that monthly from April to May, and I annualize that, the South region, the South region has been uh, in the last month, the strongest region, an annualized rate of 21.5%, uh, Mid-Atlantic second at 17.4, Southwest at 17.3%. Uh, that's a, that's a, a small snapshot, right? It's the most recent data we have and then effectively extrapolated out. If I look at the last 12 months of data, Right, the South has still been the strongest. Right, um, the numbers are correct. It just happens to be twenty-one. It just happens to be twenty-one and a half percent coincidental. Uh, but the Southwest has been the second strongest, and the West has been very strong as well, year over year. Right, um, as a result, we all know this. Right, we have homeowner equity at all-time highs, and we're continuing at this point to still expand that. Right, uh, we've seen significant increases. Um, if we look at the at the metropolitan area. So I've zoomed this in over the last, uh, just over the last five years and take the top 10 CBSAs in the United States and looked at how these top 10 CBSAs have moved over time. So that top line I mentioned earlier, Atlanta, right? Atlanta is that top line uh, overall. And Dallas is that second line, that, that darker purple line, that second line is Dallas. Um, and so you take those two markets and for two different reasons. One is, is a lot of corporate investment and the other is just a lot of migration. Uh, but two different markets that have become some of the strongest markets in the United States the last five years um, have done so for different reasons. And so you can look at the numbers. Um, I have in here for the month over month appreciation intentionally added what last month was, because I mentioned you kind of saw a little bit of this, right? 18 of the top 20 metros in June were not at the all-time peaks. The national level, your viewers at all-time peak, but I look at some of these metro areas, especially the top 10, top 20, they're not there. They're very close. You see Tampa is at 23.8 annualized versus 26.3 annualized. Dallas, again, very close. Atlanta, very close. But they're not at the peak. And so the question is, you know, where does that go? Uh, typically, this time of the year, right, home price activity picks up and you'd start to see even the appreciation rates because of competitive nature go up a little bit. So it is a little bit concerning that you're starting to see, even from these record highs, though, right, um, there's this turn, a little bit of a turn in the most recent month data. So let me change uh, perspectives for a second. So we also track, um, we get data, um, and this is actually data from uh, Credit Suisse. It's a really, really interesting piece of work they do. They have some various indices um, that look at um, different measures by uh, interactions with agents. And so they pull agents all around the country, thousands of them. And uh, a couple of the ones I think are, are, are interesting. One is the home buyer index. So the home buyer index is the blue line and it declined to 41 uh, in May, which in indicates a lower number in ind indicates slower traffic going through homes, showings, visits, uh, conversations. Uh, that decline in the home buyer index was right the largest one month decline. I, I only took this back for the last couple of years, but if you go back to 2005, since the index was, in, in, uh, was begun, it's the largest one month drop, right, in, in the index. The, the other, and this is, follow me for a second, because this is one of those where um, uh, a higher number is uh, more incentives uh, and uh, the opposite is true. So the index of incentives measures the numbers of incentives that agents or that sellers are providing to buyers. Uh, and so um, the uh, 50 is the, is the baseline measure. So a number around 50 means that from month to month, there's no change in incentive volume. Uh, being provided. And in this case, the index is a reverse index, so the lower. So the fewer uh, incentives, the higher the number, right? So in fact, the number coming down is another indication that if next month we're, we're further below um, that incentive index, the red, sorry, is the orange line, the red line. Um, if we're further below, that means we're starting to add incentives and in, in, in increase the incentives uh, in the marketplace. So that's another indicator we think that there is the potential that they could um, you know, uh, slow a little bit in the market. Um, this one I think is really interesting. Uh, and this is, uh, this is a survey, it's a, it's a Fannie Mae survey uh, on, home, on home purchase sentiment, okay? And here you look at these things, like how, how, how opposite could these be? Um, 
And it just tells you the I don't knows are a very constant number of I don't knows, right? You kind of kick them out of the pool because uh, they're not, uh, they're not uh, gonna give you their true answer. What we have here is, is good time to buy versus bad time to buy. What I think is interesting about this, even though it's now 17% of consumers um, consider now a good time to buy, right? Um, not surprising, I suspect, given what's going on in the world and in, 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 in this country um, financially and otherwise. But I think what's important to see is that that sentiment crossed over pretty dramatically well over a year ago. Right. If you look at, you know, kind of the, the big drop off, uh, you know, if I look at the drop off uh, in. In, uh, you know, right, you know, from from if you come down to here or to go up to here. Right. And I, and I come down here, I mark what this is. Right. This is this is last summer that we came down. We went from, uh, you know, 50 percent, let's say, good time to buy down to 30 percent. So, yes, we're at 17 percent, but we had a major decline over a year ago in the sentiment index. And yet we continued to have record pace of home buying uh, activity in the United States, right? Not just refinance activity, but home buying activity in the United States. We had each of the last two years, we had a record number of, of actual units, home unit, build, uh, homes sold by count. Uh, and so, you know, more so than any other time, even though refi business was obviously very strong, we saw more purchase, more homes transacted uh, in 2020 than 2019 ever before, in 2021 versus 2020 than ever before. And even in 2022, we're still seeing um, significant uh, home sales at the same time. Okay, so my summary on this is, is um, it's a mixed bag. We're still trying to figure it out, frankly. Um, supply and demand remains very, very supportive of, of um, uh, a couple of things. W one is, um, you know, number of transactions and then the home prices themselves. Um, we are, we remain, this country remains as a result of the back end of the Great Recession, we still remain about 4 million units behind the needed supply, right? And, and that doesn't take into account um, the potential with um, a, a large influx of of potential new homeowners that have come into the United States through all of our borders, north, south, east, and west, at record levels, the impact of additional households that weren't even in kind of a construct when we came up with the four million homes that we think were short, uh, we could be we could be home far less than that, and that's about ten years of building supply, right? We are we are a decade behind supply for just the demand that we have today, and so. Uh, and frankly, if, and I didn't put anything in here on this, if you look at housing prices in the United States relative to other large industrialized countries, we're not, even after this, this increase that we've had in the last uh, two and a half years, we're not at the top of the list as far as the cost of, of, of homes and affordability um, relative to other industrialized countries. And so we feel the pain. I'm not sure that it's going to change dramatically uh, in, the, in the short term, given the supply imbalance. Uh, unfortunately, that impacts affordability, and that is going to dramatically impact demographics differently. And so first-time homeowners um, and, uh, and homeowners that are maybe first-family homeowners, probably more difficult than those who have benefited from the um, equity buildup that we've had in the last you know, decade in the United States. Um, and I mentioned earlier about um, home prices and high brackets. So sorry to interrupt. We do have a question. Are monthly unit sales up or down in most recent 2022, whoops, hang on, I'm sorry, got another one. Monthly unit sales? Yeah, hang on, I'm so sorry, I got another one that jumped in front mm -hmm. of it and I lost. <laughs> Our monthly unit sales up or down in most recent 2022 captured month versus same month one year ago. Yep, so that's, so that's what, so if you look at this chart right here and you can see that what we did have is we had um, we had, uh, and you can see by the, 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 it's hard to tell this, let me see if I can draw on here. Uh, currently, they are, the numbers are about on par with where they were on average of the last couple of years. Um, monthly counts are down slightly. We're talking in the single thousands uh, relative to where we were last time a couple of years ago, uh, the last couple of years. The difference was this. So this, this year here, right, had, you can see a narrower, a narrower body. So the peak was higher. Right, means we had more in the summer months and lower in the, in the winter months. 
here the peak was lower, but you can see this body was a little bit wider, which means that we actually had a few other months that had higher than normal sales volume counts, which actually brought those totals above uh, the prior year. So this year is actually, even though it looks like it's a lower peak, this was a higher total count of transactions in 2021 than you had in, in 2020. So far in 2022, we are about, about on pace, a slight bit off pace from where we were in the first five months of 2021 and 2022. Hope that answers the question. Okay. Um, and so what I'd say is this, I would say that um, I do suspect that we will continue to see home price appreciation fall. Right? Given where we are, I, I, I clearly don't see any negative home price appreciation anytime in the, in the near future. We don't have the structural impediments towards um, negative home prices that we saw in 2005 through 2011, um, really 2008 to 2011. Um, we don't really have those structural impediments, any of the types of mortgages, right? Over extendedness of borrowers and therefore large foreclosures and the impact of, you know, individual foreclosures in neighborhoods writ large. Um, we don't have that structural impediment right now. Um, the structure just changed. So I, I think you will see declines in home prices, uh, home price appreciation rates. I don't think you'll see declines in home prices. Um, and I think that again, you'll see a continuation of challenges at various price points uh, relative to um, uh, you know, affordability. Okay, um, I, much shorter topic, although this is actually one of my, my favorite topics uh, because we do a lot of work in the space and I can talk about this forever, um, technology, right? One of the, I think the really cool things that's happened as a result of um, the pandemic has been you know, this, this push towards leveraging technology to help augment human behavior uh, more so than we would have believed. And uh, in the real estate space in general, and, and to some extent the mortgage space, but I think the mortgage space actually has been more adoptive of some of these technologies than the real estate space, frankly. Um, the, the real estate space is, is now embracing more of these technologies more aggressively because they had to during the, during the, during the pandemic and the shutdowns to be able to survive. And so I thought I'd just talk about this a little bit, right? A couple of things are super obvious. I'm just gonna tell you what you already know, um, but unfortunately, you know, valuations are necessary. They're a required um, part of our life and they're required by law uh, to to, for the extension of credit. Now, in some situations, you can use automated valuations, you don't need appraisal, you might wanna get all that, but valuations are required, right? USPAP, which is the, uh, the, the, the governing body for appraisers, right? is not really a prescriptive body. It's more of a body of ethics. And so you think about, well, what are appraisers supposed to do, right? And how are they supposed to do their work? Um, historically, it's been around kind of some guardrails and let them kind of move freely around. Uh, the GSEs in the last five years have kind of put their foot on the neck of that effort and become very prescriptive in uh, what they will accept. And when you have an entity that is the end buyer of 95% of 90, you know, 90% of of all loans in the United States over a 10 year period between the GSEs and the FHA, um, you have a lot of um, weight behind what you want to have done. And so they've put in some very prescriptive requirements uh, for appraisers to follow. Um, those are challenging because it's more work. And what we, we also have uh, an environment where the appraisal community continues to shrink. Right? The average age now of appraisers in the United States is over 53 years old, right? Uh, every year we lose about 5%. And so over the course of the next decade, we'll lose half of the appraisers in the United States. As many of you know, uh, many of you might, be, might even be appraisers. Becoming an appraiser is very challenging in the United States, right? Not only the, the certification process, but the apprenticeship process, it's not easy. Uh, and so we're asking them to do more with fewer and fewer people. And I think what's really important is also recognizing that because of the aging population of homes uh, in the United States on a, on a born on date basis, right? It's the average home in the United States is 45 years old, right? But I'll say it differently. The average interior of a home in the United States is not 45 years old. So what does that mean? It means we've built a lot of new houses, but we're actually renovating more houses now than we're building. And so on paper, it looks like they're all 45 years old, but 
they're very different. Your house, your neighbor's house might have the same facade, but inside might be very different, which makes the appraiser's job even harder because they can't just assume that, you know, Holly's house and Steve's house are, they look the same and so they're the same. And so um, the ability to allow data-driven alternatives to start to augment these businesses is really important. And I think it's really important for a couple of reasons. And one that impacts um, the lending community, I think more than anything. To date, the number of types or the number of, of kind of looks at value that happen between the time that a consumer goes to a Zillow or does a search for a property to the time that that loan closes, right? It's, it's somewhere between, you know, five and 10 different types of valuations, whether it's them, you know, looking for a Zestimate online, whether it's a lender doing a, a, a pre-application uh, AVM, whether it's a, a QC valuation, whether it's actual appraisal, right? Whether it's a, you know, another um, automated product used in quality control, they're all different. Right? And they're all looking at it differently. And so one of the things that having data-driven alternatives is starting to do, it's starting to create more uniformity in how people think about um, what that valuation should be. And that's important because there's a lot of activity at the front end that happens that um, becomes, I won't say make work, but becomes uh, unuseful in the lending community because the valuations don't, they don't, uh, they don't uh, tie out to what the appraiser or the official um, you know, valuation is going to be. So the more that we can use models and data-driven alternatives to augment the front-end process and then augment the appraisers themselves because there's fewer and fewer of them, I think the better we're going to be at creating a, a streamlined process where people have more confidence and value from the original consumer all the way through to the servicing platforms. There's been two different ways to think about this. One is what I call technology-enabled solutions. And so technology-enabled solutions are those that are like designed to simply augment the human process. And you know, by design, now it's going to reduce time. Um, it's, it should reduce cost, right? Um, and in many cases, they're used in what I'll call a waterfall approach, where the lender or the other participant, whether they're a homeowner, etc., can actually look at uh, different valuations based on the risk profile that they're willing to take, right? They're able to take, uh, or that is presented to them. So if you have an uh, appraisal that is, you you know the appraiser has always done great work, you've tracked it over time, it's a complete appraisal, right? Um, you know that that's okay. I don't have to do other things against it, right? Maybe I have um, a situation where I want to do home equity lending and I'm okay, I'm a risk position. I just, I just provide this person a first mortgage six months ago. And I'm okay with using a different product, right, to reduce the kind. And then there's these where you don't know, right? Maybe I want to start with the lowest cost implementation, and then based on risk scoring, determine if that's really the best, right, for that particular uh, scenario. And so, in the GSEs have been doing this now for a couple of years with their appraisal waiver programs, um, by effectively using data and their own internal models to make kind of black box decisions around whether or not appraisal was even necessary. And, but if you look at where, and when they first started the programs, where and when they allowed for this to happen, it was very constrained. It was the program requirements on LTV were very high, meaning very low LTV. Um, the, the geographic uh, areas where they were willing to do this um, were very homogenous. Uh, the neighborhoods had to be very similar. So a lot of things they did in the programs to make it that the, they could use these uh, different alternative products um, and, and do it at a lower cost because they felt like the risk profile was just different and it's happening all for it. And there's all, then there's a, a growth of, of hybrid products. And so I categorize the hybrid products into two areas. One is remote appraisals, um, which just allows, you know, and this is something that the GSC has allowed and have put into the future state of, of their appraisal modernization process where an appraiser Right, actually does a remote appraisal. They they don't have to view, they don't go to the house, but they do the appraisal from end to end. Right. Uh, the second is an appraisal reviewed valuation where uh, somebody else, whether it's a, an agent, might be another appraiser, an agent or an appraiser, or somebody else does the valuation, but an appraiser actually has to sign off on it. Right. And so we have these different types of, of what we call hybrid products in the marketplace. These are all really kind of blown up in the last couple of years and are very popular. Right. What do you notice about all this? It still requires an appraiser. 
we still have an appraiser problem, right? As far as age and demographic and, and uh, those type of things. And so we're starting to move into the realm of what we call technology-driven solutions. And, and technology-driven solutions oftentimes will allow us to do things that we could not do before uh, without human intervention. And this is where I think we're gonna make dramatic changes in both our ability to um, you know, value properties from a time perspective, but also from a cost perspective, right? monumental changes. Um, computer vision, which is an area of focus that um, I have a large team that's worked in this for many years. These are actual images from our uh, modeling process where computer vision allows us, it's a, it's a, it's a branch of artificial intelligence uh, most, people, most people think of, um, there's really two parts of artificial intelligence. There's what's called natural language processing, which is text and speech. So if you have an Alexa, or if you have a Google Home and you talk to it, right? that's what we call natural language processing. It's you say something, it translates into computer code. It does something and translates it back into human code. Uh, and then there's computer vision, which is making determinations about an image or a video, again, um, based on uh, not having a human interaction. And so why is this important? Because as I mentioned before, when you don't have homogenous footprints of properties in the inside, the facade, right? Don't judge, don't judge the book by its cover. Um, you have to see inside of it and you have to be able to make judgments about it. And appraisers, you know, and we, we call this a search to close benefit, right? Meaning this will help, you know, humans that want to go search, search for homes. When you go for search for home right now, like I want that white kitchen. Well, what do you do? You're, you're, flip through thousands of pictures of dozens of homes to try to find that white kitchen. When if you had computer vision technology that could just identify white kitchens and just show you white kitchens, right? Or show you homes that have hardwoods in bedrooms and carpets in, in basements or you know, wood block islands and stainless steel refrigerators, it makes that process far, far more efficient. And so developing those toys uh, to look at these things is really, really fun. It does a couple of things. In the appraisal evaluation process, it helps to standardize the process, create what I call a trusted process. Because right now, even appraisers, I can take two different appraisers, put in the same house, and they can easily come up with a different interpretation of that home. Right? Condition, finishes, they're all very subjective. And so now these technologies are, first of all, they're leveraging off a lot of the autonomous vehicle technologies, which have been great, very beneficial, got a ton of research done in that space. Uh, and self-driving vehicles and identifying objects, but it helps us to do things like mitigate risk um, and bias. Bias is really important, right? I don't, and I don't think of bias as being people are intentionally being biased. Like, I don't like you, so I'm gonna you know, make your house worth less. We all as humans have lots of unintended biases um, based on where you grew up. If I grew up in a neighborhood with all Cape Cods or all you know, uh, modern homes, I'm gonna have a different feel. It's not, uh, it's not that I have a hatred for Frank Lloyd Wright, it's just that I, I didn't grow up around those homes. And so my, my value uh, mechanism is different inside. And so, but bias can also be reduced when you leverage tools that can actually see inside a house and, out, and outside a house and give you a standardized view of condition. Right? I think this is a four. And so this is a four and this is a three and this is a two. And so when you have that ability then to look inside of a home, um, you can reduce bias significantly because the models don't know anything about the homeowner, right? We have 2.7 billion images. We don't know anything about the homeowners, right? We just know their images. And so we can build models that don't have that inference built in. And so with these technologies going forward, I think this is the future wave. Again, it's an augmentation, but it's a much bigger augmentation opportunity than we've seen in some of the other tools in the technology enabled solutions. And so, you know, improving the coverage of these models greatly improving the, the valuation accuracy, which at the end of the day, people used to say, right, automated valuations were 50% correct 50% of the time, right? And I can tell you as a guy who's been in the space for a decade, that was right 10 years ago. It's not right anymore. And it's very rapidly becoming to a spot where that's, that is definitely not the case um, in, in lots of parts of the country. And that is a huge opportunity um, for the lending community to take advantage of that. Right, for the real estate community to take advantage of that and for consumers to take advantage of that. So with that, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, that's it. I'm gonna pause, I'm gonna stop. Um, I know we got some questions along the way, but I'm happy to answer other questions um, if they popped up. Um, we do have 
some questions in here. If you want to take a look as well, I think we've hit. Um, okay, let me do this then. Let me, let me. We, we had a question that I think got answered by another participant, by another attendee um, about public data showing corporate investors. Uh, and then we have a question about why is desktop appraisals, the cost the same as a full appraisal. Yeah, it, what is your opinion on the ability for the models to reflect unique variances for the specific markets? Is there hyper, is, is there hyper turning, tuning of those models to adjust accordingly? Yeah, that's a really good question. So the way that I answer the question is that the models themselves from like a condition standpoint, that's probably the one that's most um, different in that you have neighborhoods that have different conditions largely than other neighborhoods. The models are trained, again, um, absent of any information about where the property is intentionally, uh, because in that situation, we don't want to impose any type of bias on there. So if I see a house that's a, a, a lower quality house in um, an urban area versus a suburban area, I want to treat them the same. Um, but it, it is, you know, it is always possible. So there's hyper-personalization is a form of right tuning to be more personalized. The, the way that we use that is really beyond the models and how the data from those models are used. For example, um, when we're identifying rooms, right? Um, there's certain parts of the country where mudrooms are common. And so identification of that mudroom uh, and they're valuable. People want the mudroom, right? Um, muddy areas. And so areas where those are popular, the identification of them themselves is not really that differentiator when it comes to say doing valuations. It's how that actually gets then used as an input, if you will, into a model. So like an automated or AVM model. And so the models then need to be sensitive to um, the propensity of that particular feature to be a personalization factor in that marketplace. And I can only speak for our AVMs um, because we do do that. So we do take in consideration um, rooms of the house and recognize when a room is more valuable in one part of the country than another part of the company. It will overweight it, I'm oversimplifying my answer, but overweight it in an area where it's more valuable to the valuation and underweight it in an area where it's not. Steve Walker, you've been quiet. Do you have some comments? Because I saw you taking a lot of notes. I did. I did take a lot of notes. Actually, it's pretty exciting. So I, I, I would, I would ask you maybe for your evaluation of this interpretation of what you had gone through. In the notes I took, um, you know, equity is at an all-time high, up 16%. Metro strength is kind of crested. Um, let's see, consumer sentiment is at an all-time low, which I think means we need to control the message. Um, the HPI is the highest that it's ever been. And, and I looked at one other stat, median price a year ago in March was 303 and this year 391. So basically 25% less in volume and you're exactly in the same place going forward. So it sounds like the big message is go out, find your share of the, of the business that's gonna be done because we're at an all-time high and um, control the message. Did I get the right message from you, Steve? <laughs> oh, you certainly got the right bullet points. <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah, and also it also means as as is, has been the case historically in terms like this, um, home equity will be um, you know uh, uh, you know a, a real focus for a lot of consumers. And what do they do with that home equity that they have you know they've built up for so long? Yeah, I think that I think that there's a lot a lot of folks are scared with consumer sentiment down that low. I think that. Um, you know, they're looking for answers. They're looking for, you know, what makes sense here? And, you know, should I sit on the fence or what would be the controlling reasons why not? And so I think, you know, you gave us great information today to fight against that. Well, good, then I'm happy. Did my job. I have a stat from, from, from NAR, a, a little pamphlet that uh, someone had shared. I'll put that in the chat. If you want to pull it out of the chat, put it on your desktop, you'll actually have the most current TAR. And um, Steve, can we share your, your slide deck too? Yeah, you can share my slide deck. And, and frankly, if you want to share the questions, um, uh, you know, if anyone wants to uh, follow up and ask questions, I'm happy to answer the questions as well. Um, yeah. I know I, know I didn't get to all of them and I apologize. 
Well, and I know we're running out of time, but we did have an earlier question. I think it was on your slide six, I believe, where you're showing the different states. Um, and we were asked, we've been asked if we can get that for all states. Do you have that data for all states? I do have that data for all states. Yep. Okay. I can send it. To, I'll, I'll send it to it. I'll send it to in a spreadsheet and you can okay. uh, disseminate that. Perfect. Al, do you have anything? Oh, well, look, this is a big, I'm sorry, look, this, this is a good one that applies to everybody that's listening, wanting to know if they can share any of the slides or material on their social media sites that you provide to us. Yeah, that I can't have you do, unfortunately. Um, typically speaking, if we're going to go and, and push stuff out in social, I have to run this all through legal, uh, which is also why I say these are my opinions. Um, and so this, because I was doing it as an internal presentation, uh, I didn't take the step of going through our legal channels. Uh, and so you'll all give me a lot of trouble if I uh, if I have my stuff posted on the, on, on the internet. All right. What well, I can do, what I could potentially do, is if there are specific like requests for some of some of that element, some of those elements, um, again, just reach out. And um, to the extent that I can, I'm certainly happy to do it. I'm not trying to prevent it from being there. I think it's it's helpful information um, for the marketplace, um, but I just haven't gone the our normal path. Totally understand. Al, I promise not to blurt anymore. You sure? No. <laughs> uh, just just a couple co uh, closing comments. Number one, Steve, great information. Thank you for spending the time with uh, the Fairway team as well as the Fairway customer base. Um, I think at this point in time, again, the two words I used, knowledge, uh, and, and relationships at the beginning of this presentation, I think those are, are critical right now. You need to have the knowledge, the information shared during this presentation. It's very important to know that. Um, but the relationships that we have and then the perspectives that, that we create, um, there is a lot of opportunity in, in the marketplace right now. It is much different than the last two, two and a half years. And I think, you know, we talked on one of our most recent podcasts you know, really just about trying to shift our focus away from this interest rates, you know, and, and this interest rate climb that we've experienced over 90 to 120 days. You focus on that, you paralyze yourself. You know, you focus on these pockets of business, some of the things that Steve shared, some of the comments that Steve Walker uh, shared with us. It's perspective that we go out and create. It's the confidence that we're able to close loans. People need housing. That's not going to change. You know, and I think it's just important that we sharpen our entire, you know, just arsenal of, of loan programs uh, relative to the, the markets that we're in. And again, a plug for Fairway is we're your partner in this. Um, lean on us. You need to learn a product. You need to refresh yourself on a product. Um, you need to remind yourself what the process is of doing a renovation loan or USDA lending or any one of those things, we're here to help you. So uh, appreciate everybody's time. Again, uh, it's great to see the number of folks that turned out for this. It tells us people want the information, right? Go out and use it. Um, let us know how we can help you in any way. We appreciate uh, your loyalty. We appreciate the relationship and the opportunity to walk with you hand in hand, side by side through this, you know, through these turbulent market times right now. We're in this together. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day. Thanks, Al. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, everyone.